Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Welcome to Season 2 of the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're especially proud of, advice they would give to other women following in their footsteps, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Today, we're joined by Robin Austin, who's a clinical associate professor at the University of Minnesota School of Nursing and a registered nurse with a background in informatics. She's focused on patient engagement, mobile health apps, and patient access to health records. And her most recent work relates to the use of consumer-generated data and how to leverage it for a whole person or holistic approach to care. Let's hear more. My name is Robin Austin, and I am currently a clinical associate professor at the University of Minnesota School of Nursing. This is my fifth year there, and um, I'll just jump in and give a little bit of background on my road or pathway up into being um, at the University of Minnesota. And so I'm a registered nurse, and uh, right out of nursing school, I went to work as an OR nurse. Our operating room nurse, and I thought that was such a great, fascinating area of nursing to be in. It's fast-paced. It's you get to see a lot of different things. But in that time period, we started using a lot of newer technology in our operating rooms, and so I thought that was really fascinating. Again, one more area of being able to work across disciplines, but then also engaging the the families and patients as well. So that kind of led me into more health IT field within healthcare. And um, and so in working within that for a few years, our one of our a facility I did work at, um, their ORs went completely paperless as far as documentation and charting. And so that was a very newer concept at the time. And again, it was another area I thought I could just dive right into. And so I became a super user on our systems and really tried to get to know more of the technology that I could be a go-to person to help troubleshoot some of our OR teams. And I thought that was really fascinating to get into that, more knowing about what was going on and how are all these systems connected or interconnected, so to speak. And then in that process, I ended up taking a couple years off of work and I was at home with my kids, but I decided to go back and get my master's in nursing education. And at that time as well, I did a a health certificate in healthcare informatics. And so I was able to really look at how can we combine nursing education 
and this newer world of technology into our curriculum as educating some of those brand new nurses coming out. And so that was another way for me to really get into the health IT world of how are we educating our upcoming nurses, how are we educating our current workforce, and really getting everybody up to speed, so to speak, on using technology at the bedside and as part of care management or whatever field of particularly healthcare or nursing that you were in. And then shortly after my master's, I realized I did a, a teaching opportunity as part of my master's degree, and or student teaching is really what it was called. And I realized I liked academia a lot. And I thought, if I'm going to stay in this world of academia, I better go back and get my doctorate. And so I did a doctorate of nursing practice in specializing again in nursing informatics. And part of my doctorate, I really was focusing on some of the elements of technology that I thought were fascinating, but then also maybe potentially causing, maybe could be causing some harm, meaning that I was really interested in health literacy and how are individuals or consumers, patients, caregivers, how do they have access to health information, but yet now in this new world or new medium of technology, what is online? What is out there as far as what is level of literacy that we're looking at online? Or is this causing people to maybe not have access to health information that's now so rampant on the, on the internet? And so that led me down into the, my doctorate scholarly project was focusing on how to, especially uh, particularly for older adults, how do we have them safely find uh, health information online that's reliable, safe, and easy to use as well? So that kind of led me down that path. And then um, shortly after finishing my doctorate, I moved to the University of Minnesota as a clinical faculty, and I've been there now for, again, this is my fifth year being at the University of Minnesota, and actually I'm finishing my PhD this coming fall. So adding that element of now being able to do research in this field is really quite fascinating for me. So that's a short answer to uh, my, my background and how I got to where I am. Well, I think your commitment to ongoing education and your passion for just not only learning yourself, but wanting that to transcend into other clinical users, future clinical users, and people that are sharing that passion about informatics, patient safety, is just really remarkable. Let me ask you a question, looking retrospectively before we dive into kind of the here and now, you know, we're in an age where a lot of people are using electronic medical records, we're trying to gain more adoption and patient engagement with access to information, but it, it wasn't always like that. And it sounds like you started in a day and time where in implementing that, it was quite new. Was there some people that maybe were not as thrilled or as passionate about the implementation of that technology back then? Yeah, great question. And I think even now fast forwarding to today, and I'll go back in just a moment, but even I think there are still some hesitation, even though with now we have more research to show that patients that are more engaged have better health outcomes. Patients that can read medical records or their notes feel more engaged in their own care. But when I first started out or was very interested in this area, it was more or less well, people aren't going to want to do that, or it was only a certain few may want to do that, or it was very you know, it, it was, it's going to cost more time and effort, and I don't have time to do that, it's, you know, being at the clinical bedside. And I agree with that, that argument as well, being a nurse myself that was in a very fast-paced environment, sometimes adding one more thing to my plate was just so overwhelming. And how are we going to fit this in to make it work for providers and nurses that are at the bedside, um, making this more seamless, and at the same time, engaging patients, making them feel welcome and inclusive 
And I think, too, part of the movement of patient engagement was better understanding better outcomes, but then also realizing that there was a patient safety factor to it as well, that patients could read their medical records or notes and say, no, I don't think this part here is correct or I'm missing this piece. That was another big component that I think people were waking up to the fact of like, oh, this could really be you know, a true partnership. And I think the movement also of really being very patient-centered, um, we have to include the patient. And so that was the other part, I think, that, you know, there's many, I think, national initiatives that were going on at the same time. But I agree, it wasn't always like that, and it's been slow to get going. But I think the more we the more we know um, and the more patients are really getting in, involved and also the provider standpoint as well of understanding the value of it, um, it's becoming much more, um, much more apparent and I think much more um, welcome in the health system, so to speak. So if you were to judge from a patient engagement aspect, you know, and kind of the crawl, walk, run of adopting and implementing and embracing that technology, from where you sit, where would you say that you think, you know, society in general or the majority of us are? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think we're at the walk phase almost. And I know there are some that are the early adopters that are already out there running out in front. Um, But I think as, you know, and then there are some people that are maybe don't want to engage at all or don't want to use technology or can't use technology to the extent that we would think potentially. Um, I think as a general, like, you know, you think of it as a big bell curve, right? So I think most of the population probably are at that walk phase, um, but some are certainly getting ready to launch and being in that run. Um, And so that's where I would think a majority would be, although, you know, I would love everybody to be at the run phase and everybody up to speed and and, uh, gathering all their information. But at the same time, I, I appreciate the um, the sensitivity and the intention moving forward, whereas sometimes I jump in a little bit too quickly because it's new and it's technology and it's great and cool, but at the same time, we need to be very mindful of what is our intention and do we have everything, the part, you know, privacy and security are huge issues. Um, we know from the media, we hear so much about the hacking going on or, you know, accounts getting infiltrated, all of that, and that's very personal health data is I think uh, a big concern for a lot of individuals. So I think it's being at that walk phase is a great spot that we're in because we still have time to adjust and we have time to adapt and be a little bit more nimble uh, versus having to be way out in front and then go back and, and change some things. So that'd be my guess is ready where people are right now. I have a question and it's something really speaking to the healthcare literacy and specifically electronic health literacy. We know how powerful language can be and how important it is to be intentionally inclusive with our language. How have you seen either different patient engagement strategies or potentially mobile health apps or the engagement of um, patients and are they actually understanding the information that is out there and what is being, what efforts are being made to improve that so that more people can understand, you know, this larger healthcare conversation? Yeah, great question. So that was a big concern of mine as well, that we're implementing all these great technology, you know, patient portals and all the information's online, but yet are we further creating a digital divide for, versus those that can access and maybe those that have difficulty accessing? And so I think some of the strategies that I've seen to help narrow that gap are either if they have a mobile health app, maybe having that app in multiple languages would be one, I think, having if patients have access to their records or 
and having that conversation with the provider or the nurse about do you understand maybe some of these components that are in your um, health record. I think having a patient portal has been helpful as well. And I know that some health systems have what they call, you know, a patient navigator that can help individuals navigate that patient portal. Uh, But even having Reading it once is one thing, but then having the ability to go back to it multiple times, I think is very, very beneficial. And that has served as a reference. I know for myself, if I've given a prescription or instruction, sometimes I I may be listening, but then it's always helpful to be able to go back and reference it again to say, what did they say again? Was that once, two times a day? Was that two times a day? Or when was it again? And so having the ability to go back and reference uh, multiple times. And I think being very intentional about Um, whether it's in multiple languages or having a patient navigator and showing individuals how to log in. I know when I got my link to log in to the portal, it was, here's a link. And then they kind of gave you a brief description of how to go in and and do it. And so that was very helpful. But I think having more conversations for individuals or having a very dedicated, you know, call line to, to call in and talk about that patient portal and increasing engagement around that um, piece of it. I know when I go in for my appointments now, I, I say that they'll, they'll tell me your lab's results will be available on the patient portal in about now, however long it will take. And just that they're constantly referencing that, that, that I can go to that as a communication tool. And that's now part of our conversation when I go in for an appointment. So I think that there are things that people are, there are systems that are doing, um, although I think it could be maybe more intentional. But again, I know sometimes resources are very scarce in this area. I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about that exactly when you say it's sometimes scarce because let's talk about the way that most people in America get information, probably the most pervasive way, which happens away from the system, Robin, which is people accessing information on their own. So we'll just call it out the major search engines, right? And we all know them. You know, I want to know what's going on. You know, I'm not necessarily going to the portal, even an understanding I'm the proxy for my kids, these sorts of things to gather information, send a message to the nurse. I'm at www. What have you? What are your thoughts around people accessing information that way and kind of what's going on and how we could do to maybe better guide patients or their caregivers? Yeah, that's a great question and kind of an ongoing effort. And you you hit the nail too exactly that people are going there's uh, online for health information and we jokingly call it Dr. Google because we that's the first thing I go to is I Google whatever I think I might be having or my kids might be having, what have you. Uh, but I think that there are ways that we as consumers or patients and caregivers can safely surf an internet. And as we know, kind of the internet is a little bit of the wild, wild west when it comes to health information. And people kind of made the assumption that if it's on the internet, it must be true, which we know is not correct at all. <laughs> Um, far from it. And so I think some of the things that I've I've kind of used or pointed people to as far as making sure that you are what they used to call safe surfing or um, making sure that what website you do land on, there are certain checks and balances that you can do with that website. And these are somewhat applicable to a mobile health app as well, but we'll just talk about the online health resources at the moment. But um, so I always have to tell individuals that if you're looking for health information online, making sure that your website you are at is a .gov or a .gov or a .org or even a .edu, which is more for educational academic institutions, um, maybe maybe more reliable than a .com because as we .coms might be more 
have to be selling information or selling things. Not always, but um, sometimes. And I think just being, you know, what they call a cyber skeptic and being making sure that you are, if you're reading what is, is this really true? Is this too good to be true? Then it might, it probably is, or it might be. Um, and just making sure that you understand that the website is, when was it last updated? I always check that part too. Like, was it in 2013? Although it doesn't seem that far away, but it is kind of far away. Um, and who's updating that website? Do they have a name? Is there that health website? Does it have a list of reviewers? And are they are they medical personnel or professionals? Is it by a physician, a nurse? Is it by a physical therapist or what have you kind of website you're looking at? But making sure that it might be reviewed or put out there by someone that has a credential or a license to be giving that information. Um, the other thing I think to be thinking about would be in the website in general, do they have evidence to support it? Like, is there, do they reference a research article or do they reference another, you know, National Institute of Health kind of website? Some of our more national esteemed institutions that are known for their reliability and their good information that they put out. And the other thing to look for is their bias within that website or health information meaning that are they trying to sell something and where do they get their funding? Is it funded by a pharmaceutical institution? And I'm not saying they're bad, but I'm just saying just be mindful of who it might be putting out there. Is it a, you know, a specific remedy and they're selling something? Is there, is there kind of in, in bias in that website as well? And the last thing I think to look for is what is the privacy statement? And this really is starting to move into the idea of mobile health app world too. Um, you know, is the website asking you to put in your information? Is it asking you for your name, your email address, and a phone number maybe, or things that they can push back out at you as far as advertisements? So that's the other thing I think to really understand is where is my information or any data I put in here, where is it going? And so that's, yeah, I think when we move to the idea of mobile health apps and, you know, I've signed up for apps before in the past as well, but then I, didn't, I don't really understand the privacy component is where is my data going and who owns that data? We're now getting into the idea of data ownership. And, um, but I, going back, and we'll t maybe we can touch on that a little bit as well, but I think going back to the health information online is just doing some of those very simple checks of whatever resource you're on to make sure that you feel comfortable with what it is and what you're reading. That is a lot of really solid advice that you're giving. And I think you made a really good transition over into the mobile health app conversation because we all know there's you know thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of health apps. I believe it's one of the most popular type of apps in existence. So do you have any similar or other advice for folks that are trying to narrow down, hey, which is the best mobile health app for me? Yeah, absolutely. And so some of what we talked about with the um, online health information, you can kind of use with a mobile health app as well. Um, I would just go more into the privacy component of that and where is your data going and who owns that data, so to speak. And I know that MyFitnessPal, I'll put in, you know, you have to, you can put in as much detail as you want. I think if you buy the, buy the app itself or if you use the free version, I know there's different versions out there. Um, and I'm okay with that. I was, I'm fine if they track my run, my bike or whatever, but it's really, even you're doing more of the apps that are more in depth or more in depth, um, maybe they're tracking your blood glucose or you're monitoring your weight or your blood pressure, things like that. That might be something to be a little bit more mindful of is where is that data going? Who owns that data? 
And so also going back to making sure that is this app even safe? So as we know that the rating system that they have for apps right now is basically you can look at that five-star rating and say, oh, look at this app has five stars. But we don't really know who actually is rating those apps. And I know in the past they've tried to have some rating scales or rating classifications. Um, and those have not always stuck around, so to speak. There was one in the past um, I can't remember the name of that right now, but I know it's no longer in existence. I don't know if their funding ran out or what happened, but I think keeping those just straight up simple checks and balances that we had talked about with online health information can be applied to a mobile health app. Um, but also uh, knowing that on that I forgot to mention with the um, online health information is they have some websites have what's called a HON code or H-O-N, which is stands for Health on the Internet Code. And that's an independent review that, that you, can, you can apply to for your own website. And they have um, credential licensed individuals that will go and review your health website to make sure that it matches their criteria for the HONE code. And you, then you can, if it, if it does, you can get a little symbol at the bottom that says this, this website is certified HONE code. And unfortunately, they do not have something like that right now for mobile health apps. I know that there's been talk of wanting to do that. Um, but again, I think just keeping some very, you know, you as a consumer, understanding what this, what this mobile health app does, doesn't do, where my data may be going, um, is something that you can do for yourself just because we don't have that checks and balances. We don't have anything beyond a five-star rating system yet um, to really understand. The other piece of advice I would give is that when you're, if you are looking for a specific app managing a chronic disease such as diabetes or maybe heart disease and blood pressure, is go to some of the national organizations such as the American Diabetic Association or the American Heart Association, and they themselves recommend apps as well. And so what is your professional, that national kind of organization and governing body of some of those uh, professionals, what would they recommend? And I think that's a really good place to start to to say, oh, look at the American Diabetic Association recommends, um, I don't know if it's My Glucose Buddy or something, one of those names, um, or Diabetes Pal, I think is another one. Um, and checking with that and then also asking your provider. I think that's the other checks and balances you can do to say, hey, I'm, I just saw this. It's recommended by the, you know, they endorse this. Um, should I be using this? And what would they say about it? So those are some simple things I think consumers can do for themselves to be protective. I think what we're really talking about here is getting information in a safe way, right? In a responsible way. And so when we think about safety, you know, I kind of want to switch gears here for a minute. When you think about all the learning you've done, all the teach great teaching you do, um, let's talk about patient safety and informatics kind of in general, not just information seeking, because there's so many facets to that. What has been, you know, some of the experience or insights you can share about just kind of the information of informatics implementation, growing in utilization and adoption, um, and how that can impact, you know, patient safety really in a clinical sense, and I'm sure you've seen that firsthand in many cases. Yeah, great question. So a couple examples I can think of that really impact patient safety is one, if, if patients themselves can go back in and check their own records or medication list, for example, just something, just take that medication reconciliation list and have a conversation with the provider or the nurse to, and both of them at the same time having it, it's an open up for a dual conversation to say, this is what I'm seeing. Is this, do you agree with this? And if there's art discrepancies, what are they? And then they maybe go and go in and kind of fix that or make some notes in there to say, I'm no longer taking this medication or I've never taken that in the past 
or I'm actually taking one and it's not on this list. Um, and so that I think is being able to have that conversation and to have a checks and balances um, and to have another set of eyes on that record as well is always, I think, always helpful. The other piece I've um, noticed it as well is um, even as I'm thinking of, I mean, I'm speaking from a nurse perspective just because that's what I know and that's kind of my, my, my role, um, is that being at the bedside with patients and being able to, we use the um, barcode administration for medications and then that's tied directly to their electronic health record and right away it will come up and have an alert warning if there's an allergy. And just that I think alone has been very tremendously impactful and it's a one more check and balance that we can see. We may read it in the in the electronic health record, but being able to scan it and it, it's an error warning that comes up about this patient has a, you know, a specific a sulfa allergy, for example. Um, another way to have that error warning pop up um, is another great example, I think, of patient safety and really being able to have, again, not only the patient say it, it's in the electronic health record, it's an error warning that's coming up. So there's multiple stop points um, to make sure that we are doing absolutely the best possible care that we can at that point of dispension of that medication. I was just going to say, wow, I'm really impressed, Robin, with everything that you're saying. And I, I am actually learning quite a bit through this conversation. You've mentioned in your profile, citizen science. Can you please share with us what is citizen science? Yeah, great. That's a great question. It's really, I think, another really exciting field that's starting to really emerge out of all this patient engagement, patients taking um, control of their own health data, so to speak. And some of this, I think, in, in my opinion, and others may have other disagreements or may have other thoughts on it as well, but I think it also kind of came out of the fact that we now have access to so much data and individuals have the ability to track kind of entrend their own health information. I can look back on my fitness pal and look at all my past exercises that I've done and, you know, I could graph that out if I wanted to. And so that was a, you know, a movement kind of called the internet of things or the quantified self, so to speak, is that you're able to track pretty much anything biophysiologically that you want to, that you could track and trend. But the idea of citizen science also kind of emerged out of, I think, individuals themselves that maybe aren't quote-unquote trained scientists doing some science on their own, maybe looking at nature patterns, weather patterns. And now we've translated that idea from more of a earth science, you know, environmental science world into health. And some of that has started to emerge by people that are just super curious about their own health. Maybe they were diagnosed with something and now I want to be able to monitor it myself and not have to rely on my health provider all of the time, but have it as an opportunity for a conversation or other individuals have emerged as kind of being able to monitor their own health out of a crisis. Maybe that they've needed to do this because of necessity or the fact that they were, it was brand new to them and they didn't know anything about it. And the best way they knew how was to really monitor their lab results over time. And so the emergence of the citizen science is really, I think, quite exciting. And again, another way, an opportunity for um, I think an individual who is maybe a patient tracking their own health data and health trends over time and having a conversation with their provider about it. From the research standpoint of 
of citizen science is that um, it gives them the opportunity for real patient advocates or just a patient in general to partner with a researcher and someone that is that they could apply for funding and really where the patient is asking the research and developing those research questions. It's not coming from the researcher. And so that to me is really exciting as you know, uh, evolving kind of researcher in this world is that I'm really excited to say, what are, what, how can we help you? And meaning the patients or the family members or communities to say, I can't come up with a research question. It has to come from the individual. And we together can help to come up with a solution or research something that needs to be done like right now versus waiting, you know, 10, 12 years. And the idea of science and research takes you know, what they say from bench to bedside, so to speak, is like 17 years. It's a tremendously long from when someone's actually doing research to when it can even be implemented at the clinical bedside. And so this is a way to really not fast track, but really get to our research question right away and to really ask and partner with those individuals that have those questions now. And so we can kind of get to the meat of things, so to speak, right away. Does that help answer that question? Yes, that's a fantastic answer to a really great question. And so I have to tell you personally, I met with a group of rare disease patients in Capitol Hill yesterday and got the opportunity to sit across the table from the deputy director of the CDC to explain that the parent evidence of this rare disease is something I would almost classify as empirical data at this point in time because of the lack of action, research, et cetera and the very few physicians that are there, and what could we do to accelerate partnering with them to have their support? And they had recently formed a task force in the last week. And so I actually had the opportunity to use the term you just talked about, citizen science, and share some of the formal surveys we had done as a patient group. And honestly, to see that in action in really what is a a little bit of a health crisis, um, and to have that collaboration, I think the thing I got most excited about is the opportunity to partner with them in helping better align the research questions that needed to be asked of the scientific experts, of the clinical experts, of the disease detectives at the CDC, and all of these individuals that are now starting to collaborate, but that our information was going to be meaningful and do something because we've tried in very formal ways you know, in in this case, to find a commonality or a common denominator for causation um, and epidemiology. But I love your perspective on this. And I think that's something, rare disease affects so many people, and that's just a, a niche that I happen to live in. I love what you said about that. And I think there's so much opportunity for that to be explored. But in knowing that there's large clinical and even government agencies that are willing to have that kind of collaboration was a very new and unique thing. And so I'm really excited to hear you say citizen science because I I honestly found it doing something I should probably be more careful of and be a cyber skeptic of myself more often in Google. So Robin, let me ask you a question. You have a great deal of you know, experience, not just on the clinical side, the academic side, the informatic side, but I'm sure as a consumer, like most of us as well, what is one thing you would like to see evolve or accelerate faster in the world and the arena you're living in? What is something that you're either looking for or looking forward to? I would say a couple of things too. Of course, I, you know, I tend to dream really big, but one thing for sure, I think is the citizen science movement really moving forward with intention and being able to align what I get excited about is being able to align 
my knowledge and skill with individuals that need help that they can, I say they, meaning patients, consumers, family members or caregivers, what have you, can really ask the questions and then how can we align our efforts to apply for funding and to get to the, to kind of move that forward, like you said, at a, at a much faster pace. I think is really, really exciting. And what are some of the resources that, you know, that we talked about today about being a cyber skeptic and understanding mobile health apps and data ownership? And how can we get that out to individuals in citizen science? And what are other additional skills that we can provide and to help accelerate that world and provide information? You know, from an informatics standpoint, are there specific skills that individuals are really looking for? And what are they? And how can we or me as a profession or professionals help that component because I think the more we give individuals skills and knowledge, the, the better we can be as well. And so I think that's one area that's really, really exciting to me is moving that component forward. Um, another thing that I'm really interested in, kind of going back to the mobile health app world, and I've been getting more and more curious about data ownership and who owns that data as far as in a mobile health app. And do consumers and myself, do I even understand what that means? And it came up from a perspective of if an individual is using your data you put into a mobile health app to better their product and then they sell that product for millions or billions of dollars, but that was part of my data. And so do I get a profit of that? And the answer is probably no. But I just think like if what is that? Do we understand that consumerism aspect of what is happening with data? And I had heard someone say once before that data is kind of the new currency. And But yet if they're using my data unknowingly or I gave it away unknowingly, what are the implications for that? And so I think in the world of mobile health apps is that not only do we have to have a, a symbol or some sort of criteria to say that this is a you know evidence-based app, uh, which we didn't really get into the science of evidence or, um, you know, what is the science in an app itself? But is, is there a symbol or a code that we have to signify that this is an evidence-based product? How is it rated? But then what is the level of data ownership? And so could, I, could we somehow tier it where I would agree with this app? I don't, they can use my data. I don't care. They can look at my running app or how far I run. I don't care. But in this app over here, I don't want to share my weight. I don't want to share my blood pressure scores. So is there a way we can tier that leveling of giving access to data? And I know that we're not there yet, although we're starting to have the conversations. And so I would say those are two big areas that are exciting, but yet wanting to be mindful of and making sure that we are getting the correct information out there again as well. So that'd be my two, my two areas. Do you happen to know, so you know with EHRs and other softwares that are within a medical facility, they have to go through the certified health IT product list or chapel. Even the, the apps that integrate, I believe, have to be certified. Do mobile mobile apps just get to bypass that altogether? That's a great question. And I'm not sure about that because, you know, they're looking at it has to be built on a specific platform in order to be integrated. And so I don't know. And I'm not sure how and I'm not in a big health system in their IT department, so I'm not actually able to understand how that would all work. Um, I know there are some health systems that are working to integrate that mobile health app data into their EHR, but as far as certification of that app, I don't know. That's a great question. It'd be a great way to start segueing into say these apps would be useful in a health system. These, if they're personal use, you can use them outside the health system. That'd be a great next step, I think. I mean, it seems like we do have a, um, 
a platform to at least start that conversation. I'm sure that the mobile health apps don't have the same uh, certification requirements, but, you know, something similar, a subset of them probably would make a lot of sense. Right. Absolutely. And I know that there is even conversation of depending on what the app can or can't do, it might have to be certified or go through the process of FDA approval. And there's a, people have a lot of conversations around that as well or opinions. So um, that, it, again, I think it just depends on what the app does or what they, who the developers, what they want the app to do, whether it needs FDA approval or another subset of certification. I think that would be really helpful to help understand the credibility of, you know, what people are accessing and making use of, to your point about getting information safely. Let's veer off in a little bit different direction. This is the Hit Like a Girl podcast. You have worked as a female for a long time in the clinical side, in the HIT side, in the academic side. What has your, how has your experience been shaped in being in probably what is oftentimes classified as a male-dominated, you know, field or fields, plural? Yeah, great question. And so I think I took a couple of things. One, I took, I had a good role model. My mom was in health IT or just, not health IT, sorry, IT in general back in the day. And I saw her modeling the way as far as how she behaved, how her role, and she moved up the ladder and became executive leadership as well in organizations. And so I think I had a great role model. And I remember her telling some stories about specific meetings that she was in and, you know, behavior that was exuded towards her just because she was a female. And how did you handle that? I would ask questions about what did you do? And my mom is really good about not overreacting or letting it show that maybe something bothered her. And so I think seeing that, even though it probably it did bother her, but being able to see that and how do you handle that? But two, I had really good role models and um, as far as out in the field as well. So I think in the, all the positions I've been in, I've always kind of sought out a female leader that I looked up to. And I've had some great mentors along the way and even some of the mentors from afar, but just watching their behavior, how did they act, asking questions. I had one great, she was the director of our surgery center and she just had such a great way of being a leader. And she would always, we're not playing the blame game. We are, you know, this is what we need to do as a team. And I think just being able to see that and I just applauded some of the tough decisions that people had to make, but made them with such confidence and authority and, but at the same time, compassion. And so I think being able to see those and then apply some of that to myself as well. And I remember I'd have meetings with some mentors along the way. And one in particular, we'd meet every you know year, every other year. And she'd say, okay, now you need to work on this. And then I would run and go do whatever she had talked about. And then like a year later, I'd follow up and say, okay, now I've done this. How about... And I remember having a conversation with her about a position and I said, well, I didn't really go to this meeting because I, I don't think I, you know, it was for other faculty or I just didn't think I was there. And she said, stop. She just said, wait a minute. If not you, who? And I was like, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, if not you, who's going to do it? And so you need to step up and you need to stop thinking of yourself as a junior person or you don't belong. And so some of those moments where it's someone had to kind of have a little bit of tough love to say, you do belong there. You need to step up and you need to get out from behind the chair, so to speak. So I think those things for me without my, in my career of seeking out some of those highlights, not to say that there haven't been moments where 
you're super frustrated or maybe an unfair situation came up. But it's how you handle that and your resilience for coming back or coming back better to say, you know what, I could learn from that situation. It was not great at all. It was super uncomfortable. But I think I would do this and this next time. Or I would, I would first of all, start out by doing something different on the forefront. But being able to reflect on some of those experiences, good or bad, and how are you going to move forward and have a better foot forward, I think would be great. So having a good role model at home, being able to find great mentors along the way, knowing you're going to have some hiccups and that's okay. Um, but how do you learn from those little bit of hiccups and have some passion to move forward? That's all really great advice. And what you're sparking in me is an idea that I learned, you know, basically, we all experience fear, we all experience being intimidated by something. But it really is important to acknowledge, you know, that we're actually, in a lot of ways, bigger than those fears and bigger than those intimidations. So moving forward, or stepping up or taking action, even if you do have feelings of, you know, not being good enough or just being insecure in general about going forward with something and living with that discomfort and growing past it. So thank you for all of that advice. Yeah. And one more thing I had to say too, that I always laugh at is I remember I had a mentor advisor of mine and she was saying, well, you know, you're, you're growing when you're feeling uncomfortable. And I said, well, then it must be working because I'm uncomfortable all of the time. <laughs> so <laughs> it was kind of a joke, but it's true. It's, and when you do have those moments of growth, it's maybe not the most comfortable, but being able to move into that area or, you know, co- being comfortable with the uncomfortable, so to speak, is, is a good way to put it too. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Well, Robin, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. If somebody wanted to find you online, where would they look? Yeah, thank you. So they could go to LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, and it's LinkedIn uh, slash Robin R. Austin, D-N-P-D-C. If you just probably searched out Robin R. Austin, that would come up as well. And I'm also on Twitter at, at Robin R. Austin. Excellent. And Robin, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? today that we didn't get to or anything else you want to mention? Gosh, you know, um, this has been such a great conversation. We touched on so many topics. I think it's just, you know, from a health IT professional standpoint is that, um, you know, we all have insecurities and fears, but to move ahead anyway is, is I think the best, best way to go about it. And as far as the citizen science movement is, I think that we're just touching the iceberg right now. It's going to be really exciting in the next few years. But if somebody wanted to get involved in citizen science, what recommendation would you have for them? Yeah, that's a great question. And so actually the National Institute of Health just started a, I think they have a few resources or toolkits out there. And so if you just, if you Googled National Institute of Health Citizen Science, and I think it's called CITSCI-BIO, meaning C-I-T-S-C-I and then BIO, B-I-O, they have some great resources out there as well that can, and then links to other things that can get you out for more information or just finding in general what, what is it that they're trying to do. And I think coming from the National Institute of Health and they're taking notice of this as well is a really big step and a really great opportunity. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. It was fun. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, Check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes. Or simply tell a friend. 
You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you.